0: Hi everyone, I'm Dr. John White, the Chief Medical Officer for WebMD, and you're listening to a special edition of Health Discovered that we call Spotlight On. As always, we bring you fascinating stories and unique perspectives while looking for those unexpected discoveries along the way. We also explore thought-provoking ideas and questions. But today, we're gonna take things one step further with an up-close and personal conversation about a rare form of cancer, one i bet you haven't even heard of, multiple myeloma. To help us learn more about multiple myeloma, you're going to hear from Kate, a mother of two, whose life changed in an instant when a routine blood test revealed the unthinkable, cancer. Kate's journey from diagnosis to living with multiple myeloma, it's going to show you what resilience truly means. perhaps might even inspire you to want to get involved in the fight against multiple myeloma then i'm going to be talking with my friend dr joseph McHale. dr McHale is the chief medical officer of the international myeloma foundation and he'll talk about just how good current treatment options are as well as what's on the horizon we'll also hear about what if anything you can do to prevent myeloma but first what is multiple myeloma that's probably what you're thinking Well, multiple myeloma is a type of blood cancer. It starts in your bone marrow. That's the spongy tissue inside bones. This is where your body makes blood cells, including a certain type called plasma cells. Myeloma happens when your plasma cells start to change and they grow out of control. They let in too much protein, something called immunoglobulin, into your bones and blood, and that damages your organs. Now, the good news is it's not that common. About 35,000 new cases are diagnosed a year, still way too many, but for perspective, that compares to over 275,000 breast cancer cases and 150,000 cases of colon cancer each year. The journey to diagnosis can be a challenge with many people learning they have it simply because of a lab test, which as I mentioned, is what happened to Kate. Kate, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me, Dr. White. I'm actually, um, was very nervous about being able to share my story today for many reasons.
0: Well, I appreciate you doing this. Like many people with multiple myeloma, your health journey didn't start with a concern for cancer. You and I had an opportunity to talk prior to today's episode, but yours initially focused on a miscarriage.
1: That's right, yeah. Um, So just to to set the stage a little bit about the surprise that I received along my uh, pregnancy journey, I uh, started a career about 20 years ago as a registered dietitian. And my focus was I wanted to get people before they became sick, and I wanted to help them prevent being sick. This is the the life I want to live. I want to help other people. So then I got married in my 30s and, you know, wanted to start a family. So I you know, I had been a marathon runner and, you know, I was doing yoga and everything. And I thought, no problem. I'm from a very fertile family. I'll have, (laughs) have my kids and move on with my life. And I, um, had a miscarriage, you know, right before Christmas, like the year I got married. And I thought, oh my God, this is horrible. Um, my doctor said, oh, you know, these things happen, you know, um, miscarriages, a lot of women have them before they even know they're pregnant. So, all right. So we move on and I get pregnant again and really excited. And, have another miscarriage. And so, and I'm not getting any answers from my OB. And so I went to a specialty clinic and they ruled out other causes of miscarriages. And they said, you should be fine, but you know, you are getting old. So, you know, you may want to consider IVF or IUI. So I, doctors you know, I thought, can be
0: tough. can't right? they? <laughs> <laughs> That's old for maternal age. Yeah.
1: Right. I mean, this shouldn't be so hard. And So I started to think about like, well, what other causes could, you know, cause a person to have a miscarriage? So I had been seeing patients with celiac disease for years and, you know, I don't know if people know this, but, you know, if you have undiagnosed celiac disease, like that could be a cause of of a miscarriage.
0: You told me you were going to be a nutrition sleuth. I love oh, yeah.
1: That. <laughs> it's like detective work, right? So, you know, so I go to my primary care and I am like, okay, listen, you're going to test me for celiac. And then if I have celiac, I can just eat a gluten-free diet, get pregnant and move on with my life. You know, I could do this. Again, I just was the type of person that I thought I could control everything and I could fix things. So she did the celiac test and she called me and I'll never forget this. I was walking on 22nd street and and I get a call saying, you don't have celiac, but this one, one of the numbers, one of the tests was off the charts and you need to see an oncologist. And I thought, what? What are you talking about? The immunoglobulin IgA came back 2,400 and it really should not be over like 400. So at that point, I had been working in a multi-specialty physician practice and I was good friends with the oncology uh, doctor. So he said, don't worry, I'll run all the labs for you. So he did. And then he said, oh my God, Kate, this looks like you might have, you know, asymptomatic multiple myeloma. I'm not a myeloma specialist. You need to go see the world-renowned, like the best person I know at Mount Sinai.
0: What's going through your head right now? Because you're thinking maybe it's celiac. You're not expecting them to come back and say, you might have a type of cancer. Had you even ever heard of multiple myeloma?
1: Absolutely not. And I've been pretty much a vegetarian, a vegan on and off like my whole life. Um, and I thought, well, I'm not at risk for that kind of cancer because, you know, I'm so, I eat so whole up healthy. So the cancer thing was just kind of like, the, well, this is not happening. Um, I'll go rule this out. I'll go see this specialist, you know?
0: They've got to be wrong.
1: They've got to be wrong. Exactly. This can't happen to me. Like, do you know who I am? <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I live and breathe health and wellness. Like that's my career. I finally got the appointment, I guess, six weeks later. Six
0: weeks later, wow.
1: You know, and again, for me, I was like, I didn't think it was this urgent thing.
0: Did you have a fear of finding out?
1: Oh, of, of course, of course. I actually saw your segment on the one of the morning shows about the cancer checklist of prevention, and people want that, have that fear of finding out. But for me, you know, I'm a, this detective, I'm all about, I was hypervigilant about my health. I was almost the opposite. I was like the worried well always want to make sure that everything was okay and like, there was nothing wrong. Right. But then I always expected everything to be fine. So anyway, so I, the week I got the appointment with this oncologist specialist of multiple myeloma at Mount Sinai, I found out I was pregnant again. This would have turned into my, my firstborn son. I was 37 years old. This was about 10 years ago. And, uh, he tells me I have asymptomatic multiple myeloma. They actually did a bone marrow biopsy first trimester with my son and they wanted to figure out the staging and the the prognosis to see like, well, how, how advanced is this? It was a very nerve wracking pregnancy, to be honest, because every week I'm like, is he okay? Is the baby okay? Like, you know, am I still pregnant?
0: <laughs> At one point early on, weren't you told you only have about seven years to live?
1: Yes. They told my husband and I that, you know, once it became active, the prognosis was about seven years. And... That was just crushing. I mean, we were just beside ourselves. And it was just so abstract. Even telling family members, I feel like they couldn't really... It was just too abstract for them to even understand, you know, this unknown cancer. It wasn't active yet. What did that even even mean? Because there was nothing to do. There was no treatment at that time um, for asymptomatic myeloma unless it was like a clinical trial or something.
0: So you you have your successful pregnancy, a healthy boy, correct?
1: Healthy boy. Once he was born, our entire world was focused on this new living being that we were responsible for. So of course the myeloma is in the background. And, you know, I had a career, I was running a department, a whole, I founded a nutrition department within this physician practice. And every intern I had from Columbia's Teachers College, I'd tell them my story. I'm like, you got to do some research. Tell me what you find. I like had a whole team of detectives, like working for me to kind of figure out how can I prevent this from becoming active? Like I can do that.
0: And you said you wanted to go back to a normal life. Were you able to return to a normal life? Or as close to normal as it was before your diagnosis
1: that's an interesting question because what what is a normal life I have this baby and of course I had to do everything the right way I breastfed for a year I made all this baby food organic from scratch um, you know I was pumping at work and you know <laughs> trying to mentor other other moms that are trying to do this too
0: in the meantime you're doing these periodic lab tests correct
1: every three months for years for the past 10 years. I have my son. I'm going to the, you know, to this cancer center. Some of the appointments, I had him in like the carrier. I was going in to get my blood work, but I had the baby and I'm looking around the waiting room. Like, why am I here? You know, this is crazy. And the people I'm seeing that are patients, I mean, they were much older than I was. And then every year I would do the bone marrow biopsy PET scan that would get me kind of worked up and stuff.
0: Well, let's, let's talk about the pandemic because your journey takes a bit of a detour around the pandemic, right? Because some of your scans were canceled, right? And you just did labs. And then you were able to get a scan last year. Tell us what that showed.
1: 2019 was the last time I was in person with my doctor, the PET scan and bone marrow biopsy. And he said, you're so stable. And this is not linear that it's like all, you know, it's going to like slowly go up and then you'll need treatment. He's like, it'll go bonkers. And you know, it could go, you know, high uh, very quickly. And we'll we'll know before you know that you'll need treatment. So that was 2019. Mm-hmm. Then March 17th of 2020, I was scheduled for another PET scan and bone marrow biopsy. And we all, all know what happened that week when we thought it'd be closed for two weeks and we'd so all sure. be able to get back to uh, our life in two weeks. So that bone marrow biopsy was canceled. So then my doctor did a virtual visit with me. Everyone kind of went to virtual visits. He said, you know, all the labs had been good. You could just keep doing blood work. And then when we can, we'll bring you back in for the bone marrow biopsy. So that didn't happen again until May of 2021.
0: A year later?
1: A year later. But again, I sent in blood work and everything, all the labs and numbers were, you know, we've been studying them for years. They all look good. So I got my vaccine in March. I was like, like most people super happy and excited to like start socializing again. I mean, we, had a, we left the city with our kids the beginning of the pandemic just for more space and be able to survive a little bit. But again, we had no family support or babysitters. We were excited to have a summer to be able to socialize. This is, I guess, our, all of our mindsets when the vaccines came out. So I go and get the bone marrow biopsy and PET scan and I'm seeing the labs coming back in the chart and I'm thinking, okay, they all look good. And um, someone from my doctor's office um, calls me and she said, oh, I'm sorry, but the rest of the labs came in and your numbers are up and you're going to need treatment. And I was just like floored, just completely devastated. What did this mean in terms of like treatment? Is it chemo? Is it a transplant? He said, you are heading towards organ failure, like kidney failure. You need to start treatment like this weekend, which was like in two days. So here we are. I live like three hours from the hospital. I'm like four hours from my family. It's still COVID, still you know pandemic. I just got catapulted into treatment.
0: Did you have a chance to read up about it? You said you've always been a, a sleuth. Were you doing your own research and talking to the doctor about it? Or were you just kind of now in a passive mode, just willing to do whatever they say and recommend?
1: I, you know, was guilty of, you know, focusing on just surviving, you know, with the pandemic, especially surviving day to day without a lot of support, without, you know, with working remote, you know, and with the kids at home, not really having like a regular doctor to go to. I have two kids now and, you know, life's busy and I have a career I will admit I probably had a little bit of denial going on where I did not want to research anything about myeloma at a certain point. I did hyperactively in the beginning, and then I just kind of put it aside. Like, it's not going to happen. But the International Myeloma Foundation has been instrumental in my healing process. I actually, because of the fact that I'm so much younger than the typical patient, I just felt like I couldn't relate to anybody that had it. Although I have a few friends or mothers have, have multiple myeloma and they've been absolutely wonderful with being able to talk to me about their treatment experience, I still wanted to talk to somebody that actually had small kids and that were dealing with like the stressors that I have and the reality I'm living. So the International Myeloma Foundation had a support group for families with myeloma and just learning about it made me feel better <laughs> about having myeloma.
0: We'll be back with more from Kate after a short break. And now, back to my conversation with Kate. Well, tell us how you're doing. You you started, I believe, on quadruple therapy. Is that right?
1: That's right. Most people think with cancer, it's just like this one-size-fits-all, and it's just like this toxic... Thing. Well, in multiple myeloma, there's lots of different treatments. And the quadruple therapy that I'm on, um, there's different mechanisms of action of each of the drugs. So I'm on you know, a steroid called dexamethasone, which helps with the multiple myeloma. Um, and then there's IMIDS, which are these immunomodulatory um, drugs, proteasome inhibitors, and um, these immunologic approaches. I don't have to sit with an IV all day like a lot of cancer patients. I get an injection in my abdomen, which was like a lot to get used to. After teaching my diabetes patients, oh, it doesn't hurt, it's this tiny needle. To, I get you know a lot bigger dose of uh, a medication. It was hard for me to get used to that, but I I think I'm, uh, I'm getting to become a pro with it.
0: But you'd mentioned to me that they told you to protect yourself like a porcelain doll. H- how did you respond to that?
1: My doctor had been concerned because when, patients are going through cancer treatment, you're immunocompromised. Your immune system's not as strong. And even like a cold can knock you out for a couple weeks. So with COVID, his concern was he had lost a lot of patients in the beginning of COVID that were on starting treatment to COVID because their immune systems are weakened. And this is before the vaccines came out. So he said to my husband, like, you need to protect her like a porcelain doll. Meaning, like, you know, we really need to make sure that we're taking a lot of precautions, even though things were opening up. And remember, this was right in the summer when people were starting to mingle and, like, get together. Um, Cases were a lot lower where we were living, but still the risk was higher to me. And I think that the word choice he gave really kind of struck a chord, you know, with both of us. I think of myself as, like, a tough person, but I had, you know, it was a good reminder that, you know, I had this underlying weakness from this cancer and the treatment.
0: And how has your response been to the treatment? What's next in your journey?
1: I had a tremendous response um, after six cycles. He said that I am I'm in a partial remission, technically. Um, so there's no trace of cancer in my blood. So I'm heading next week to do a stem cell harvest. And whether or not I actually do a stem cell transplant is up to you know to be determined. But um, now's the time since the cancer cells are so low, this is the time to harvest the healthy cells. So I'm doing that next.
0: For a long time outside of family members, you kept your journey private. And you recently posted on Facebook and you mentioned to me many people had no idea what you had been experiencing. Why now tell your story?
1: Well, I think, so the, the first, the big expose that I did was really on my private, like Facebook account. And I don't, I'm not a big social media poster. Um, I try to really limit cause yeah, I'd like to focus on reality and like my real life and my real circle of friends and the day to day. But then I kind of felt this obligation to like share my story. So I, I, put a little story out there and it was a very long post and thank you for anyone who actually sat and read the whole thing. I think that it was just a beautiful thing to be able to share a vulnerable side of my life and to feel all the love in return. And in exchange, I've been able to support other friends and knowing what I need to kind of get through this has helped me better support other friends that are in need
0: or family members. What do you need to get through this?
1: It's that interconnectedness and just staying in touch. Like, for example, like my children and I have relocated. So everybody that I've met in this new community knew me very briefly as this, like, you know, kind of a high energy mom that, like, was really involved with her kids and wanted to, like, socialize to, like, all of a sudden she has cancer. So what I need right now is just for people to be like, okay, like, that's, that's part of who she is, but that's not what defines her. Um, and, you know, I don't know. Like, I feel like I just, it's that interconnectedness and people reaching out and just providing support and love um, the way I would be supporting my neighbors and friends uh, in my community otherwise.
0: How's multiple myeloma changed you?
1: I think that for me, like, it's changed me and it's humbling. You need to be a, an active partner in your care. There's things I could always do better, but at the same time, I'm human. People looking at me, they don't think I, I'm sick. They wouldn't think that I had cancer. And you're not a failure if you eat right, exercise, meditate, sleep well, and still get cancer. You, I mean, there's still things that you've helped yourself with. I mean, I'd like to think that I'm living a, a happy life right now. Just have a little bit of a extra thing to, to take care of. This is just part of it.
0: Kate, I want to thank you for sharing your story, for helping provide support to other people that are also having this journey with multiple myeloma. And I I thank you for your inspiration, for your positive attitude, as well as you taking control of your life and trying to control those things that you can. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today.
1: Thank you, Dr. White.
0: Joining me now is Dr. Joseph McHale. Dr. Mikhail is the Chief Medical Officer of the International Myeloma Foundation and a practicing hematologist in Phoenix. Thanks for joining me, Dr.
2: Joe. It's absolutely a pleasure to be with you.
0: Kate talked about how she thought she was having other problems. Maybe she had celiac disease. And then boom, all of a sudden, she's told she has multiple myeloma. How common is that as part of the
2: diagnostic journey? You know, it's actually not uncommon at all, John. Um, The challenge with multiple myeloma is that there isn't one classic symptom or sign or something that patients experience or even a single blood test that gives it away. It can often be the great mimic of many other things, and other things can ultimately uh, as in Kate's case, turn out to be multiple myeloma. So there are a few things that are a bit more common. We Most patients who have myeloma unfortunately experience quite significant fatigue because their blood counts are so low, their hemoglobin gets so low, and most patients experience some kind of bony pain because of the way myeloma affects the bones. But outside of that, there are so many different ways that this complicated disease can present. And one of the reasons why, unfortunately, uh, a lot of people have a delayed diagnosis by the time we recognize that there really is myeloma. Because the symptoms are pretty nonspecific. Correct. Absolutely. And and so uh, whether it's from the patient's side or f- even very often from primary care, you know, a patient doesn't walk in with a sign on their head that says, oh, I have myeloma. Uh, they have Often, non specific things that uh, there are much more common reasons for low back pain than multiple myeloma. There are more common reasons for a low blood count than myeloma, or kidney dysfunction, or uh, protein in the urine, or uh, nerve problems like neuropathy, where numbness and tingling can be prominent in their hands or their feet. Those are the classic things that people present with. In fact, recently, a study in England showed that most. Patients with multiple myeloma, by the time they're diagnosed, they've had three visits to primary care with signs and symptoms consistent with their myeloma.
0: You know, part of it may be that myeloma is rare. I mean, literally, it meets the definition of a rare disease, which is affecting less than 200,000 people. Does that play a role in it that it's not on the radar screen of many clinicians? It's certainly not on the radar screen Of most patients. And in Kate's case, she's not the typical race, gender, age. Can you talk about the the impact of it being a rare disease?
2: Mm -hmm. And it is indeed a rare disease. It accounts for somewhere around 2% of all cancers. Although interestingly, we are seeing more of it as we see the population age and as we're getting better at detecting it. So uh, I often talk about this tremendous paradox. On the one hand, it's only 2% of cancers. It's typically seen in people over the age of 65 or 70. It's twice as common in the African-American population than in the Caucasian population. We are trying to, of course, increase awareness around this, especially in higher risk populations, such as African-Americans, where the diagnosis is twice as common, and patients are typically diagnosed at a younger age by about five years. The average age of diagnosis is about 69. The average age of diagnosis in African-Americans is about 64, 65, and maybe even a year younger in Hispanic-Americans.
0: But what does that mean, raise awareness?
2: Through the International Myeloma Foundation, we've created what we call the Empower Project, where uh, we want to empower individuals and communities to change the course of myeloma because the current course of myeloma of course is not appropriate in particular within the african-american community to know who is at greater risk let's just get myeloma on the list so that we can test because the blood tests that we do for myeloma pick up nearly all cases and often can pick them up earlier than when someone comes in in horrible pain or with damaged kidneys because it's advanced
0: Well, let's talk about options and treatments and where are we in treatments. I was a little bit surprised in Kate's story when she says the doctor told her she has seven years to live. Aren't we in a better place today than we were a few years ago in terms of
2: treatment, Dr. Joe? We are absolutely in a better place, Dr. John. (laughs) We have uh, seen really a revolution in myeloma. Uh, I started in myeloma nearly 25 years ago. And at that time, the average expectation of life in someone with myeloma was maybe one to two years. Wow. But even just in this last 10 to 12 years, we have double, if not tripled, the average survival of patients. I saw a new patient this week, and we had this conversation that based on what we've done over the last decade, my expectation is that patient's going to live more than 10 years. I'm hoping as now we move into the future – that that prognosis will become even better. Now, of course, it's still very humbling. There are forms of myeloma that are extremely aggressive. We have a huge variability within myeloma from people who live for 25 years and sadly people who live less than a year. But overall, we're seeing this tremendous improvement. And as I mentioned, having done this for over 20 years, I honestly don't think I have seen a more exciting year for drug development in myeloma than this year with all of these new approaches, I think we're really going to change this disease.
0: Let's talk about that. Can you help explain to our listeners, you know, generally, where are we in, in terms of the different options for myeloma? Of course, it depends on presentation, but amazing advances.
2: Oh, absolutely. Of course, every case has to be discussed very particularly with their team. But in general, as you said, we started with the more If I can call it older school chemo, people think of the the bald and barf chemo, right? Where we're using big doses of drugs that really cause a lot of side effects and a lot of, uh, if you will, friendly fire, but are quite effective in reducing the disease. Well, we're moving further and further away from that all the time as now we begin to employ a patient's own immune system against their disease. The essence of immunotherapy, where we can have drugs that really only hit the bad cells, the cancer cells, and leave the good cells behind. And I say it all the time, John, I don't treat myeloma, I treat people. And so we want to see them as people and care for them as people and recognize that it's not just about the tumor, you know, it's about uh, caring for the whole of the patient.
0: As you know, I'm an internist. So the patients I see, I'm talking to them about diabetes and heart disease. And, And I'll tell you, in recent years, I've seen how they come in and they talk to me about different drugs they might've heard or different options. So I wanted to ask you in the area of of multiple myeloma, how often do you see people like Kate when she said she was like a sleuth, right? And, And she pronounced drug names very well too. And some of these can be hard to enunciate. Is that a change that you're seeing that patients are doing some homework either beforehand or afterwards and wanting to engage more about their treatment plan?
2: That's a fantastic question. And I would heartily say yes. Uh, In my years in practice, I have never seen as great a degree of patient engagement as the present. And I think a lot of it has to do with the opportunity for people to really get reliable information. Obviously, a lot of the work that we do at the IMF is to provide that information to patients. In fact, the founders of the IMF were some of the first cancer advocacy groups to say, you know what, patients need to know about their disease and bring these questions to their doctors. We're not questioning the professionalism or the expertise of our physicians, but we want to advocate for the best care. You know, the majority of myeloma patients in this country are cared for a general oncologist who spends less than 5% 5% of their time on myeloma. And with all of these cancers becoming complicated, you know, having access to expert opinions and having access to more resources is only going to help everyone. So I very much encourage my patients to be informed when they come to their appointments with me or with their other physicians. And we're really seeing a degree of engagement that I think uh, is going to further help our patients, not just that they feel more intellectually engaged. But we now have studies in oncology showing that when there is enhanced communication between the provider team and the patient, that outcomes can be better, not only in quality of life, but actually in quantity of life. So I teach our students and fellows and residents, listen, you want the best for your patient. It's one thing to know about the fancy schmanchy drugs. It's another thing to communicate With our patients. And that part of old school medicine, I think, will hopefully never go away where we connect on a human level and allow patients to ask questions. That now, in myeloma, for example, where we have so many choices that we never had before, now patient preference can be part of that selection. But what does that look like,
0: practically speaking, when we say we're going to include patients' preferences? Because let's be fair, doctors aren't always good. Two way communicators, right? We're we're waiting for our turn to talk. If we give them a chance to talk, and then often we're dismissive at times. But now, as you pointed out, there's support groups that patients can talk to other patients about their care. You know, I was struck by Kate's line when the doctor said to her, "Be treated like a porcelain doll." Like like, how realistic is that when you have two young children? Is that where preferences come in?
2: Well, first of all, we we as I said before, we don't we don't treat myeloma; we treat people. And so, it, it it may appear to the clinician that oh boy, I've got to take all this extra time now to listen to them and to, but it's part of part of it is developing that relationship and understanding what's important to that patient, and being able to outline very clearly what those options are, so that we can get into that as we often call shared decision model. And sometimes we engage the whole of our team for those who have access to advanced practitioners or pharmacists or nurses or others who work with us because we we want to be careful in what we provide and offer for our patients based on what their lifestyle is going to be so that they don't have to be Uh, You know, thought of themselves as in that bubble where they can't interact with others and they can't play with their kids, and um, this becomes very important to me. One one of my favorite questions to ask literally every patient is, "What do you do for fun? What brings you joy?" And so, I had a patient recently talk to me about how he absolutely loves to go uh, to certain football games, and I said, "Well, look, our our goal, obviously, when the pandemic settles, is to get you well enough and strong enough to get back to that."
0: Well, that brings up, again, this issue of where we are in the evolution of treatments. And sometimes there's been some controversy in the field of cancer research in terms of are these new treatments impacting outcomes, outcomes that matter? So I'll I'll put that question to you. Are these new treatment options, the, the ones that you're discussing, how are they impacting patient
2: outcomes, as well as quality of life. Well, that's another, I think, part of the evolution of what we're doing in our research and in our clinical trials. For the longest time, really, the goal of early clinical trials was just prove the drug is safe and is effective by whatever tool historically we used, which was in our cancer world progression-free survival or how long someone stays in remission and still alive or overall survival, how long they essentially live. I'm seeing an evolution now where, especially in myeloma, we're now adding quality of life measures throughout. We're asking our patients routinely and systematically throughout the studies that we're doing, how is this influencing the key areas of their quality of life?
0: And how has immunotherapy changed that Every treatment option has risk versus benefit. How do you
2: weigh that? And how does the patient weigh those risks versus benefits? That's, I think, what really requires that discussion and that open, honest discussion, because... Many of the side effects we see now from these newer immunotherapies are, are quite different than the historical you know, low blood counts, loss of hair, uh, nausea, the things that we typically associate with a lot of treatments. Now we see different things. We may see skin reactions. We may see people, you know, when they first receive it, have what we call an infusional reaction or they can get chills and shakes Thankfully, that tends to be very short-lived and often just the first dose and then thereafter are improved. And sometimes it's even pills thereafter, so people can not even have to come into the clinic. I want to
0: ask you about cure. When do you think we might see a cure? And, And I get it. Many folks in the cancer community don't like to use that word. Will we see a cure in our lifetime?
2: Well... I know I'm Dr. Joe, but I'm not Prophet Joe. So (laughs) it's hard to predict the future. But all I can say, first of all, is that we are definitely closer to it now than we ever were before. Part of it is us learning how we define cure, because there may be cure, the scientific definition, and then there's cure, the patient definition. You ask the average Joe, you can say that when your name's Joe, ask the average Joe on the street, what is cure to you? They're going to say, well, someone treats me and I never have to think about the disease again. So, cure may not be staying on a treatment the rest of your life. If I cure hypertension or high blood pressure, does it mean I have to take a pill the rest of my life? Or you do something to me and I don't have the high blood pressure anymore? So, part of it, I don't want to get semantic, but part of it depends on the definition. But as I see it for many of our cancers, if we can at least initially convert them to a chronic illness where Patients may require some ongoing therapy, but ongoing therapy that doesn't heavily influence their quality of life, that's a major step forward. And we are even starting now through the work at the IMF and through the whole myeloma community, beginning to design clinical trials where we can treat people to a particular um, uh, level
0: and then stop. Changing cancer to a chronic disease. Interesting perspective. So so I'll end with this because Kate also brings this up in uh, the interview in terms of her focus on a healthy lifestyle, you know, a cancer prevention lifestyle to some degree. Is there anything listeners can do to prevent multiple
2: myeloma to reduce the risk? As Kate nicely pointed out, As we try to think about risks of myeloma and even cancer in general, there's often a combination of many things. There are things that you can't change and there are things that you can change. I can't change my genetics, well, at least not yet, (laughs) Um, but I can change my lifestyle. We know that there are certain lifestyle things that can be associated with myeloma. The majority of myeloma patients, we do not feel that their specific lifestyle is what led to their diagnosis.
0: Dr. Joseph McHale. I want to thank you for taking the time, for for sharing your insights and and helping explain uh, the exciting
2: developments that we've had
0: in myeloma care, as well as what might be on the horizon.
2: Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure, my friend. It's been great to be with you today.
0: Thank you for listening to Health Discovered. I'm Dr. John White, the Chief Medical Officer for WebMD, reminding you that better information does lead to better health. Until next time.